Welcome to my podcast. Now, in today's episode, we are going to follow a special format that I've introduced in my review of, um, or preview rather, of my book, uh, Philosophy for the Science of Animal Consciousness, where I read out the beginnings of the book up until um, almost the conclusion of chapter one. And this audio format of my papers, my publications, is something um, that will become an important part of this podcast. Now, today, in this episode, we will start by going back to my very first publication, Procreative Beneficence and Genetic Enhancement, a paper I wrote during my undergrad at the University of Bayreuth, and that I was very happy um, got published uh, in my final year of my undergrad studies. And now I will provide a readout of this paper as well as some commentary in regards to perhaps how my views have changed. Um, and I hope this will be helpful to anyone who perhaps might benefit from uh, listening to this paper by, say, not having the time, perhaps on the way to work, they might want to listen to this. Um, also, there's many um, humans, of course, uh, who have conditions like dyslexia, um, ADHD, that can make um, reading long texts harder. And here, I think, having this option to provide um, audio versions of papers can be quite useful to make um, yeah, your academic writing more inclusive and accessible. Um, so let's dive right in. I'm going to share my paper here. All right. I hope you can all see this. So the paper is titled Procreative Beneficence and Genetic Enhancement. And the paper starts by providing a nice summary here, an abstract. Imagine a world where everyone is healthy, intelligent, long-living, and happy. Intuitively, this seems wonderful, albeit unrealistic. However, recent scientific breakthroughs in genetic engineering, namely CRISPR-Cas, bring the question into public discourse how the genetic enhancement of humans should be evaluated morally. In 2001, when pre-implantation genetic diagnosis abbreviated here in this paper is PGD, and in vitro fertilization, that is IVF, enabled parents to select between multiple embryos, Julian Savulescu introduced the principle of procreative beneficence, which will here be abbreviated as PPB, stating that parents have the obligation to choose the child that is expected to have the best life. In this paper, I argue that accepting the principle of procreative beneficence and the consequentialist principle, CP, that two acts with the same consequences are morally on par, commits one to accepting the parental obligation of genetically enhancing one's children. Right. So I will here introduce Julian Savolesco's principle of procreative beneficence and then argue that if we accept it, we are not only led to endorse the conclusion that we should pick the best embryo, but that we should also engage in genetic engineering. All right, so this will be the core ethical claim here, that if we accept this principle, that there is an obligation for parents to genetically enhance their offspring. Now, to go into this paper, a bit of a... Uh, repetition here in the beginning. Imagine a world where everyone is healthy, intelligent, long-living, and happy. Intuitively, this seems uh, wonderful, albeit unrealistic. However, recent scientific developments in genetic engineering, namely CRISPR-Cas, bring the question to public discourse how the genetic enhancements of humans should be evaluated morally. Now, notice... Um, while you can have an abstract that's very similar to your introduction, Typically, um, not encouraged. You can see, sort of, this was my first paper. <laughs> That's where I did it. Uh, I wouldn't really write uh, content dissimilar anymore because for readers, it can be a bit off-putting when the introduction is so similar to the abstract. Nevertheless, um, it's, of course, 
perfectly adequate doing so. Um, in 2001, when pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, PGD, and in vitro fertilization, IVF, enabled parents to select between multiple embryos, Julian Savalesco introduced the principle of procreative beneficence, stating that parents have the obligation to choose the child that is expected to have the best life. In this paper, I argue that accepting the principle of progressive beneficence and a consequentialist principle that two acts with the same consequences are morally on par commits one to accepting the parental obligation to genetically enhance their prospective children, that is embryos. A position Julian Savolescu doesn't explicitly endorse, but I argue is committed to. As the argument I provide may seem like a slippery slope, the largest part of this paper is tasked with responding to a multitude of possible objections. Now, um, for my students, I often recommend that uh, for their own essays, that this is really something they should focus on. Very rarely do you see students thinking through the possible objections of the views and then how they can respond to those objects. And again, this is something that can really make your essays better, how you can improve your academic writing by anticipating objections that can come and then responding to them. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I think to me, uh, when I wrote this, I uh, wasn't necessarily this great writer. Um, but when I discussed these ideas with others, um, there were a variety of objections that were given. And I realized in order to really get this argument across, I have to anticipate all of the major potential objections that can be raised and respond to them. Now, um, so I will argue here that even though there are differences between the application of the principle of procreative beneficence and genetic enhancement of embryos, they do not demarcate a relevant moral difference between the two in respect to their obligatoriness. All right, so there might be a lot of differences here, but I argue that they're not morally relevant. There's no morally relevant difference between these two um, ways of enhancing. All right, so the paper is structured as follows. In section two, I define and explicate various concepts that are related to genetic enhancement, that is human enhancement, um, well-being and the principle of procreative beneficence, technological specifics and explanations of how genetic enhancements work will for the most part be omitted in this paper, dealing purely with a normative question that is should parents genetically enhance their children if the technology was available. Actually, let me make this a bit larger. This might help um, you to read along. We can also go um, in the read mode. Perfect. Um, yes. All right. Um, so in section three, I will formulate and explain the arguments that those who want to be parents have the obligation to genetically enhance the embryos. Section four, I anticipate and evaluate a number of possible objections, including inequality, freedom and welfare in the society. In section five, I conclude that even though the consequences of the principle of procreative beneficence, application and genetic enhancement in embryos might require different kinds of policies, these differences do not provide sufficient reason to give the application um, of the principle of procreative beneficence and the parents using genetic enhancements of the embryos a different moral standing. All right, you can already see perhaps um, that this was my first academic article in English. Um, it's nice to see that I can now see a lot of ways how I can prove uh, the essay stylistically improved the English. I suppose that shows that my English has improved. Um, but yeah, um, it's nice looking back at your own papers after a while to examine perhaps the arguments uh, and think about how you could improve them um, after all. It's, uh, common academia to um, revisit some of the topics you've written about uh, 
years earlier, examine them in new lights, respond to the objections that have been given, say, to make a stronger case than you perhaps originally gave. But let us now move to section two with the important concepts for this essay. According to Zabolescu, Sandberg and Kahane, there are two main senses in which the term enhancement is used. Quote them here, functional enhancement, the enhancement of some capacity or power, for instance, vision, intelligence, health, and human enhancement, the enhancement of a human being's life, page three. So in most discussions surrounding the term enhancement, people refer to the functional definition. In all cases of the functional enhancements, um, it is an open question whether the improvement of some capacity makes the life of the person receiving the enhancement actually better. It therefore is an open question what the moral stance on any particular form of enhancement is. However, proponents of enhancements usually use the latter definition. Right? So that's quite a difference. After all, Sabulescu argues it is not, quote, disease, which is important, but its impact on a life in ways that matter, which is important. People often trade length of life for non-health-related well-being, page 419. The concept of human enhancement employed by Savolescu and others is comparatively less straightforward and requires further clarification, as it is crucial for my argument. Savolescu, Sandberg, and Kahane jointly propose the following definition of human enhancement. Quote, any change in the biology or psychology of a person which increases the chances of leading a good life in the relevant set of circumstances, page 7. According to this welfareist definition, our conception of morality is not needed to define enhancement, as we do not define an enhancement as being better than normal, but simply being better full stop. Medical treatments are therefore just a form of enhancement. See page 8. Opponents of enhancements, on the other hand, are trying to argue that enhancing something is going beyond treatment and is therefore not morally demanded. The welfareist definition of enhancement is crucial to understand where parents have the obligation to genetically enhance their children. Those who disagree because of, say, adherence to a different account of enhancement are talking about something different. If a genetic alteration in an embryo is not expected to lead to a better life of that human, then it is simply not an enhancement. Furthermore, it is important to explicate the principle of procreative beneficence, which states here, quote, couples or single re reproducers should select a child of the best of the possible children they could have, who's expected to have the best life, or at least a life as good a life as the others, based on the relevant available information. Page 415. Savolescu proposed this principle in a time when pre-implementation, genetic diagnosis, and in vitro fertilization were highly debated, trying to convince even non-consequentialists. However, new technologies might enable us not only to screen for genes, but also to change them. In his consequentialist framework, he himself thinks the parents have the obligation to genetically enhance the children, notably, page 16. So the question arises whether the acceptance of the principle of procreative beneficence and the consequentialist principle, um, the two acts with the same consequences are morally on par, itself entails the parental obligation to genetically enhance the embryos. In the following, I should argue um, that this slippery slope, perhaps, as one might perceive it, cannot be avoided. A crucial part for this argument is to define the expectancy of the best possible life. This is a vague part of his argument, but what counts as an enhancement hinges on how welfare is defined for which there are several theories. So there's hedonism, desire, preference, sex satisfaction, subjective list theories, um, see, for instance, Griffin and Parfit. Sabolescu has not uh, assigned himself to any particular theory, thus claiming to avoid some of the weaknesses. And he provides here a pretty nice quote, which I um, have introduced here as a block quote. I have not committed myself to any particular substantive conception of the good life. That is a complex question as old as philosophy itself. I believe the best life is a life of objectively worthwhile activity that provides pleasure and is desired. Page 286. So 
Instead, he focuses on all-purpose goods that would, according to all of those welfare theories mentioned above, count as enhancements. For example, quote, memory, self-discipline, impulse control, foresight, patience, sense of humor, sunny temperament, empathy, imagination, sympathy, fairness, honesty, and so on. Capacity to live peaceably and socially with others. Page 284. Surely some of this might harm us. Think, for instance, of post-traumatic disorders in conjunction with better memory and imagination. But what matters is that they are expected to make a life go better. Right? In, they don't have to make your life go better in every single instance. As it, what matters is that they are expected to make your life go better. A final definition of welfare is not necessary for our account as long as we're able to evaluate these all-purpose goods. Even if it turns out that there is only one such all-purpose good, satisfying the major theories of well-being, that is hedonism, desire preference, satisfaction, objective list theories, the argument provided in the next section will require parents to genetically enhance it in their children. Nevertheless, as we follow the welfare risk definition of what enhancement is, um, with medical treatments being a subset of enhancements, the set of all-purpose goods might be rather large. Um, so, e.g., for example, a functioning heart, brain, lung, etc. Moving on to the next section, section 3, obligations, uh, obligation to genetically enhance embryos. There are at least two ways to argue for the position that the principle of procreative beneficence entails the obligation to genetically enhance embryos. One could argue that selection out of possible children entails the selection out of possible genetically enhanced embryos. After all, one could possibly have a genetically enhanced child. In that case, um, genetic enhancements would simply fall under the principle of procreative beneficent and hence be obligatory. However, it is debatable and is not necessary to accept my claim. For my argument to proceed, I will require an additional premise, which is the consequentialist principle. Consequentialists are only concerned with outcomes. How these outcomes are achieved is morally irrelevant. Killing and letting die are thus ceteris paribus morally equivalent. In order for my argument to hold, I need to show that the outcomes of the P, PB, and genetic enhancements are in embryos are morally on par. So what is this crucial outcome of PPB? It is the expectancy of the best life, which we are expected to achieve if Saulescu's all-purpose goods. To formulate my argument, you can hear in traditional philosophical form, um, distinguish four premises, which then lead to the conclusion five. So premise one, those who want to be parents have the obligation to select a child that is expected to have the best life, or at least as good a life as the others based on the relevant available information. This is the principle of progressive beneficence. Now, premise two, application of the principle of progressive beneficence leads to the creation of children that are expected to have the best life or life at least as good is without application of the principle of procreative beneficence, based on the relevant available information. Now, premise three, if act A and act B have the same expected consequences, then they are morally on par. This is the consequentialist principle. Now, premise four, genetic enhancements in embryos lead to the creation of children that are expected of the best life or life at least as good as without genetic enhancements based on the relevant available information if you accept these four premises we are led to the conclusion five therefore those who want to be parents have the obligation to genetically enhance the embryos now form premise one follows that um, two is obligatory for those who want to be parents as two and four have the same consequences, it follows from the consequentialist principle that four is also obligatory for those who want to be parents. As stated in the beginning, we are accepting the principle of progressive beneficence. Therefore, premise one and premise two, as well as the consequentialist principle. If someone, for instance, Sabolesco, would want to refute the conclusion, five, without dropping one's commitment to one, two, and three, only two ways remain. First, denying the truth of premise four, 
And secondly, denying that a conclusion follows from the premises as the consequences of premise two and four differ in a morally relevant way. Let me now turn to these considerations in section four. Keeping in mind that every position that refutes the conclusion but is inconsistent with premise one, two, and three is not a valid objection to the argument I bring forward. Over here in section four, objections and defense. One cannot deny the conclusion of an argument that takes the form. If you accept these premises, you have to accept this conclusion by denying the truth of one of the premises. The argument provided in this paper aims for just the sort of conclusion Philosophers accepting the consequentialist principle and the principle of progressive beneficence do not have a valid escape from being charged with the slippery slope of advocating genetic enhancements. So I'm not in this paper making a case that we should all um, genetically enhance children. That is a much stronger argument. The argument I'm making is that if you accept two principles that are commonly held in bioethics or ethics more generally, then there's also the moral obligation to genetically enhance children. Now, some might see the slippery slope um, perhaps as an argument to question the original premises. Perhaps they shouldn't be endorsed. I'm not here really interested in this question. All I'm trying to show is that if you accept these um, principles, then you should also accept the conclusion to genetically enhance um, offspring. So to narrow the scope of this paper, I'm not taking a stance on the matter, whether the consequentialist principle or the principle of procreative beneficence is right. Such as an endeavor would require more than a single volume book. I only argue that philosophers and researchers like Julian Savulescu, Anders Sandberg and Guy Kahane should either bite the bullet of advocating human enhancements or indeed stop being consequentialists advocating the principle of procreative beneficence. The objections that follow are the nothing more but misguided attempts of stopping the slippery slope. Let me begin with the seemingly obvious objection the premise four is false. An objection often put forward is that genetic enhancements have risks that are too high or unknown and would make the life of the person targeted go worse. I argue that this hinges on different conceptions of what counts as an enhancement. First, it is clear that genetic alterations do not necessarily increase the expected welfare of an agent. However, I am not concerned with genetic alterations per se, but with genetic enhancements. No serious advocate of enhancements in humans would deny the difficulties in achieving successful genetic alterations. In fact, the terminology of philosophers and researchers advocating the procreative, uh, the principle of procreative beneficence, that is, Savolescu, Sandberg, and Kahane, don't allow for this objection. As noted in section two, they employ the welfareist definition of enhancement. A genetic enhancement, by definition, increases the expected welfare of children. The question whether genetic enhancements does really increase welfare is irrelevant because in virtue of premise four, it's in fact a tautology. Though this may seem like a cheap way of justifying genetic enhancements in humans, this is what proponents of human enhancements are advocating. Using genetic alterations when they're expected to improve the life of a human embryo including perhaps open-mindedness for the future of the technology. It can, of course, still be asked whether genetic alterations are technologically possible in such a way that they lead to the creation of a child with high expected well-being. This is an empirical question, and even if they currently are not, this doesn't free us from the task of answering this question. After all, Many questions in ethics are formulated like this. One might argue that current technological limitations might give uh, society an obligation to invest heavily into research as the potential benefits are enormous. However, this is of no concern for my argument because even those who disagree with genetic enhancements ever being technologically possible have to accept alleged empirical evidence. 
In 2015, Chinese researchers released an article showing that the gene um, editing of human embryos is in fact technologically possible. They used a technique called CRISPR-Cas9, which makes it impossible to tell which genes are edited. Page 363 to 372. Realizing that premise four, being a tautology, cannot be false, and conditionally accepting premise one to three, any further objections against the conclusion following from the premises might seem pointless. However, one way to refuse the conclusion remains. That is denying that the consequences of PPB, application and genetic enhancements of embryos, are the same. Granted, it is obviously true that two acts may never have the same consequences, if we consider every possible consequence. However, these differences have to justify a different moral standpoint, meaning that the principle of procreative beneficence, PBB, is obligatory while genetic enhancements of embryos are not. For two acts can be different in their goodness while nevertheless still both being obligatory. Right. Um, so, to uh, make a side point here, uh, think for instance of perhaps of the obligation to save a drowning child. Um, you might have an obligation to save a drowning child um, if you see one. And similarly, you might have an obligation to save two drowning children that are right next to each other. Um, and both these might be obligatory, um, but you could still say that saving two children is better than saving one. Right. Um, all right. So, however, so these... Uh, for two acts can be different in goodness, while nevertheless still both being obligatory. A familiar example in line with the principle of procreative beneficence would be the obligation to send your children to school and the obligation to feed them. Right? It's way better to feed your children um, than to send them to school. Right? You don't want to have them starve. That is much worse um, than not sending them to school. But nevertheless, both are obligatory. Or at least providing them with an education, if you perhaps think, uh, in principle, you could perhaps educate them yourself instead of sending them to school. Objections of this sort can be categorized in two ways. First, the expected welfare of the child might be different between selecting and enhancing an embryo in a morally relevant way. Second, they might only be morally equal in one respect, that is, expected welfare of the child while leaving out other relevant consequences that differ between the two and justify a different moral standing. Some objections might overlap as consequences such as freedom or equality and the implications on the welfare of the targeted embryo and overall average welfare. The remainder of this paper has the purpose to explore and debunk a multitude of such objections. Section 4.1. Degree and Precision. Concerning differences in well-being, parents object that genetic alterations might be morally different from other welfare-increasing procedures of offspring because they have the potential to be much larger in degree and precision, page S7. However, concerning premise 4, this objection is unsuccessful because the consequence we want is explicit, explicably uh, the life that is expected to be best. If genetic enhancements do so much better than mere selection, then parents' objection would rather support a moral priority of genetic enhancements against mere selection. However, some might object that genetic enhancements are less reliable in their effects, therefore unprecise. That, however, is an empirical question doesn't change the fact that these genetic alterations are expected to make the target's life better. Though this is the most obvious objection and should therefore be tackled first, it is also the least harmful to the arguments provided in this paper. Section 4.2, risk. Another objection often put forward against genetic enhancements is the risk objection. That is, that the principle of procreative beneficence has far less risks to its application compared to genetic alterations. Of course, genetic alterations currently bear risks much greater than mere embryo selection by IVF and PGD which do not change the genetic constitution of the embryo. However, 
when genetic alterations are expected to be overall more harmful than beneficial, they do not count as genetic enhancements, are therefore ruled out. If we cannot determine probabilities, then we cannot judge the expectancy of the best life anyway. This critic of human enhancements is rather meaningless, therefore, against the welfareist definition of enhancements. When it comes to risk, the opponents of genetic enhancements are attacking a straw man position. The proponents of genetic enhancements do not adhere to. Risk, degree and precision, empirical concerns, not only for the opponent of genetic enhancements, but also for the enhancement advocates who do take them seriously. But even if the risk of harm is currently unknown or outweighs the potential benefits, this doesn't indicate that genetic enhancements uh, should be avoided. One could rather argue, again, that we should do research until the expected benefits outweigh the medical risks of harm, um, not stop research altogether. Also, the potential benefit to be gained by genetic enhancements is much larger in degree than mere selection. Demanding a risk of zero to the targeted agents is over-demanding. Otherwise, medical treatments would never be at the point they are today. Still, this is a factor that affects the expected well-being uh, negatively and therefore has to be considered in judging whether a genetic alteration counts as an enhancement. One further one might further object that contrary to somatic gene therapy, which only affects the targeted individual, germline interventions will affect the offspring of the targeted embryo and the offspring of his offspring and so forth. However, we are enhancing all-purpose goods like intelligence and health. It seems implausible to claim that all-purpose goods are always expected to increase welfare, but might, might not do so for future generations. Even so, if in the future new scientific advances change our subjective probability assessments, genetic alterations that did not count as enhancements could do so in the future and vice versa. However, it would then be the obligation of our hypothetical parents' offspring to ensure that their own offspring has the best possible life and perhaps undo some of the changes to their gene code. Uh, excuse any spelling mistakes here, yeah, of course. The principle of procreative beneficence does not indicate an obligation towards grandchildren, but only to our own children. Different times and cultures may very well render different genes beneficial. Think of intelligence and the muscular labor in former century. Maybe it will be the case that those enhanced will be less well off than unenhanced humans would have been because they see themselves as objects rather than subjects. A natural patient with paraplegia may be better off than a super-enhanced guy with superiority in health, intelligence, strength, etc., but cannot deal with the fact that he's created artificially, perhaps becomes an alcoholic or worse. If he had reason to give this outcome a certain probability, it would have to be calculated in whether we can judge a genetic alteration to be an enhancement or not. Therefore, higher risks are no reason to justify a different moral standing from PPB. Let me have a little bit of water before we move to the next objection. Section 4.3. Um, however, even though the expected welfare of genetic enhancement and embryos and application of PPB are the same, the issue of potential harm to the embryo could still justify a moral difference between the two. The PB, PPB seems to capture the intuition of parents being obligated towards the children's welfare. Harming would indeed be quite contrary to this. Savolescu argues that genetic enhancements can harm an embryo in a way mere selection cannot. He asks us to imagine an embryo A, who was selected for existence but later develops cancer. As long as its life is worth living, it cannot be said that we have harmed him, for he would not have existed otherwise. However, this still seems to be morally wrong. If we genetically alter an embryo B and he develops cancer, assuming his life uh, is worse, then it would have been without genetic alteration. 
then we would have harmed him. Page 422. Unlike the objection to premise 4, we cannot disregard the harm objection by hinting at the welfareist definition of enhancement. Genetic enhancements are expected to lead to the best possible life. However, harm is concerned with the actual life, not expected welfare. In this respect, the principle of progressive beneficence and genetic enhancements differ because the harm objection is successful against genetic enhancement, while it is not against PPB. However, Savolescu's argument also implies that parents that selected an embryo with the expectancy of the highest welfare and turns out to have a higher well-being than the others cannot claim that they benefited him. On the contrary, parents that arrange the embryo to be genetically enhanced and the embryo turns out to benefit from it can take credit for this. Imagine a couple both bearing a defective gene that would certainly cause blindness in a child. IVF and PGD would not be able to help them and the child. However, a genetic enhancement would. According to the consequentialist principle, failing to select for sight and blinding a child would be morally equal. That is impermissible as they share the same consequence. If such enhancement technology were available, children could justifiably condemn their parents for having harmed them in the sense that they did not give them this benefit. This might seem odd at first, but using an ordinary example, we condemn parents who do not send their children to school in order to ensure their education. In this case, we also use the term harm. The claim, then, that there is a moral distinction between harming and failing to benefit requires a special kind of argument that may not be compatible with the consequentialist principle. I take on the view that there is no relevant moral difference here. As such, the harm objection that aims to establish a relevant moral difference between genetic enhancements of applying the principle of progressive beneficence raises a benefit objection against the principle uh, of procreative beneficence that parents do not actually benefit their children. However, I have an additional argument against the harm objection, and that is the relevance of harm and benefit altogether. As indicated in section 3, the morally relevant part of the principle of procreative beneficence is the expectancy of the best life. I argue that it is not selection of the best expected life that is morally relevant, but a creation of the best expected life. Using again the example of a blind child or the child not being sent to school, it is obvious how the term benefit and harm seem to be used interchangeably. If refusing to provide benefits is the same as harming, then these categories are morally not exclusive. Therefore, if you take premise free serious, we cannot argue for a moral difference between selecting and altering. The only thing that matters is the creation of the indicated consequence, welfare. Those who disagree would have to solve the non-identity problem of Parfit, which, which suggested that harming future individuals is not possible because in acting in that way that people existing in the future are completely different from those who would have existed otherwise, thus would have not existed otherwise. This is under the assumption that small events can change history dramatically. The same can be said about long-term investments that would only benefit generations far in the future. However, even when we do not harm future generations, we still value actions as wrong that lead to worse lives than otherwise would have existed. Page 100 to 115. The analogy to the principle of procreative beneficence and genetic enhancements is obvious, as no one is harmed that would have otherwise existed. Therefore, I conclude that what matters for parents is not a life being beneficial or harmful for the child, but a creation of a best life in a welfareist sense, providing further support for the thesis that there is no relevant difference in the moral consequences. Let us now turn to possible moral differences between selecting, that is the application of um, the principle of procreative beneficence and enhancing an embryo in areas other than the welfare of the embryo. In the following, I will explore freedom, equality, and the welfare of society, this collective rather than individual. Section 4.4, freedom. Let us first consider consequences like freedom, autonomy, or missing consent. The majority of philosophers refuse the view that it is impermissible to have children on grounds of the lacking consent for being born. 
The notion of requiring consent from an embryo appears to most philosophers unnecessary or perhaps more so incoherent. However, in the case of genetic enhancements on embryos, this might be different, for they could have existed without genetic enhancements. Still, there are many therapies, treatments, and medicine that are often deemed to be obligatory, even though there is no consent. For instance, vaccination, say, in a young child. Also, everyone should be familiar with parents sending their children to school, even though the children might not have given them their consent. Um, as a child, uh, when I was a child, I certainly wondered who gave my parents my permission to do so. But even granting that we can meaningfully speak of consent here and it being morally relevant, the consequentialist framework requires us to weigh the negative consequences against benefits of such genetic alterations in order to justify a violation of consent. In fact, freedom to choose can be viewed as instrumental or even constitutive to welfare, but this objection would be ruled out by the welfareist definition of enhancement. If a genetic alteration undermines such that it cannot count as an enhancement, um, the question then becomes whether a genetic alteration does so in general. Thinking of deleting a gene that causes deafness or blindness suggests otherwise. In medicine, there is often a clash between respecting the autonomy of the patient and his welfare. But as Bess Bostrom and Roach highlight, considerations like missing consent cannot be applied for embryos by definition. Um, which by definition cannot give consent. Instead, they argue we should make decisions in a way that would be in the interests of thinking in terms of the welfare, page 22. Uh, Jürgen Habermas claims that this goes against the freedom of the embryo, page 62. He calls this denying the opportunity of being the undivided author of his own life, page 63. Again, uh, Bostrom and Roach argue that enhancements would not decrease autonomy, but rather have the potential to increase it, page 21. Just as education makes us more autonomous, genetically increased intelligence would serve the same purpose. If the mere existence of genetic enhancements undermines our feeling of being autonomous beings, and this is not an argument against genetic enhancements, but rather exposes our concept of autonomy as nothing more than an illusion. If children feel like they have to fulfill the plans of the parents, then this might limit them in their freedom to be the undivided author of their own lives. But this is an objection to a particular treatment of children. Genetic enhancements have the aim to increase rather than limit um, one's possible choices in life. If genetic enhancements make us free to do things we would otherwise not have been able to do, then this seems to be even further support for genetic enhancements. Um, moving on to the next objection, equality. Suppose that besides the principle of progressive beneficence, equality is also a morally relevant consequence. There's a rather famous critique against genetic enhancements from Melbourne and Botkin, that is them being too expensive. And therefore, even when all parents follow the obligation, the children of rich parents will be far more enhanced or those of poor parents won't get any enhancements at all, 1998. Why could this objection be applicable to genetic enhancement, but fail against the principle of progressive beneficence? Applied as an objection against PPB, Savolesco explains that one would have to argue that because selecting the child with the expectancy for the best life will lead to more inequality, parents would have to create a child with worse life prospects, page 288 which seems to be counterintuitive. If everyone applies the PPB, there might be rather uh, be more equality rather than less by eliminating the natural lottery and additionally making everyone better off. Under this argument, we could accept both equality and the PPB as compatible. However, with genetic enhancements, this might not be possible. First, let me defend my argument against the intrinsic value of equality. Equality, unlike freedom or welfare as a concept, always hinges on the relations between individuals. Contrary to this, an enhancement that makes someone less equal, say by bringing a genetically altered embryo into existence with the disposition for intelligence far above average, other things being equal, this would increase inequality in genetic makeup. Concerning the worry of unequal access through wealth, Savolesco argues that it is not an objection to the 
principle of progressive beneficence, hence genetic enhancements, but to all purchases of benefits like better education or healthcare. If equality matters, then these benefits should be available to all, page 288. The same obviously applies to genetic enhancements. This is neither an objection against the PPB, nor the parental obligation to genetically enhance the embryos, but to how equal the access to technology in society is. Both consequentialist views can very well coexist. For example, if the state ensures equal access while parents are only concerned with their child. Furthermore, there are reasons to believe that genetic enhancements will not affect inequality at all, or even decrease it, as Bostrom Roach, page 16, suggests, by making people more equal, like it is uh, in the case with modafinil, um, uh, a smart drug that is often used to uh, increase performance rather than as it's originally intended um, and medically designed uh, for stopping those who um, fall asleep um, easily, nacrolepsy. Um, the same could hold for genetic enhancements. How inequality could affect welfare will be addressed in the following section. Um, so the argument here is that just um, like modafinil gives more of a benefit to those who are suffering more from sleepiness, uh, inattention, genetic enhancements might help those who are, um, if you have a spectrum, who are more on the average side or worse than average, say, than the people we consider to be having um, elite, say, levels, really high levels of intelligence, health, well-being, and the like. Uh, increasing those levels even further is going to be more difficult than making people um, better off that are more average here or on worse, uh, worse off. So in fact, the argument is that it would benefit the people um, the most that are given this unequal access by the natural lottery. Uh, this explanation aside, let us move on to section 4.6, welfare. Another consequence of applying PPB is the effect on overall average welfare. The objection against the PB, PPB is that it is too much focused on the individual as opposed to the lives of everyone, page 287. Of course, the same objection can be applied to genetic enhancements. In fact, even if we state genetic enhancements might be good for the one who gets by definition, that's how we define enhancements, right? They could decrease the overall average welfare in the population and vice versa. Now, referring back to freedom and equality, we can account for the instrumental or constitutive welfare, a value to welfare in this part. The implication of both equality and freedom on the individual welfare is by definition accounted in what counts as an enhancement. However, both could have morally relevant implications on that overall average welfare. Now, I use overall average here because um, different people will have different views on whether, say, utilitarians or consequentialists more generally care about um, the total amount of welfare versus the average. Right? Some might think that it's better to have very few individuals that have very high welfare, whereas others think it's better to have more individuals that might not be as well off, but then in total, there's more welfare um, in existence. For instance, such a moral principle might lead to discrimination of the unenhanced. However, Savulescu's response is that discrimination does not show that the principle of progressive beneficence is wrong, but rather how people treat each other, which is a different topic. Genetic enhancements and empathy, sympathy, and other moral capacities could very well decrease discrimination to a level that is even lower than the discrimination we face in an unenhanced world, um, page 288. Also, the optimistic outlook that increased intelligence, including emotional intelligence, should make the enhanced less likely to discriminate should not be disregarded. Even if, in virtue of introducing genetic alterations as a new technology, this leads to a new form of discrimination against the unenhanced, we might significantly decrease other forms of discrimination once moral enhancements are introduced. Though akin to parents denying their children vaccines, I suspect that it's much more likely 
that if there is any new form of discrimination, that it will be directed against parents denying their children the possibility of a better life. That is moral condemnation. In analogy, I argue that just as we should not let scientific research into vaccines be influenced by, say, anti-vaccine parents, fearing moral condemnation, the reduction of genetic alterations for humans should not be stopped by a set of parents unwilling to use the new technology. Both act against the interest of their child and perhaps just as in the case of vaccines deserve moral condemnation. Um, which perhaps is quite relevant now with the last years um, these debate about anti-vaccine skepticism having become much more prevalent. So in fact, vaccines are just a form of enhancements. They are expected to make you better off. So the discrimination objection further requires the possibility of distinguishing the enhanced and unenhanced. With the new technology CRISPR-Cas9, um, it is, however, impossible to find out which genes were altered or edited. The unenhanced might not even know that they have not received enhancements. Even if there won't be blatantly obvious discrimination of the unenhanced, we may argue that there will be discrimination in competition like work because the unenhanced might on average be slightly less efficient. The discrimination then would be based, however, on differences in skill rather than on the Eve enhanced unenhanced distinction. But first, such a treatment does already take place and is generally not regarded as discrimination. Very few people think um, they're paying someone more because they perform better in their job is discrimination. If some parents are able to afford a a better or further education for the children, for example, tutoring, we neither prohibit such practices nor are we able to provide good counterarguments for parents uh, who insist that they are obligated to provide the children with the means to go ahead. Most political philosophers take it as uh, the task of the state to make education accessible to those who would otherwise not be able to afford it, including perhaps tutoring. Rather than denying the parental obligation of enhancing one's children, the discrimination objection provides a very good argument for an egalitarian policy, making genetic enhancements available for all. Savolescu accepts that some enhancements might make the individual better off but harm the rest. For example, by making someone manipulative or cunning, page 287. For example, parents might choose to alter the DNA of their child in a way that makes them more cunning resulting in him being better off while the overall average welfare decreases. However, that argument can simply be taken in the opposite direction. We might want to alter the DNA of embryos that will expectedly lead them to have worse lives, but will benefit the overall average welfare. This, of course, would also be an issue for the principle of progressive beneficence. One cannot hold this view and simultaneously be in favor of the PPB. Though the argument might successfully underdetermine, uh, undermine the principle of progressive beneficence, a defense of said principle exceeds the scope of this paper. For defense of the PPB, I suggest the work of Savolescu. Even so, this might be an issue for the state that should uh, enforce restrictions while parents are primarily concerned with the welfare of their child. The effects um, of one particular enhancement on the overall or average welfare of society must in the eyes of parents seem negligible. The arguments are usually stated in a much broader sense, that is the availability of the technology itself. In fact, even with restrictions on the technology, the underlying parental obligation doesn't cease to exist. If the state is justified or obligated to stop such genetic enhancements as a whole, be it by appealing to equality, freedom, or overall average welfare, is an open question whether that actually frees parents from the obligation to genetically enhance their embryos. There are several reasons to think that a prohibition of genetic enhancements by the state doesn't free parents from the obligation. First, it would be over-demanding to ask from parents to act against the best interest of their child on grounds of marginal effects on the overall or average welfare in society. Second, it would be an incompatible view with the principle of progressive beneficence as parents specifically aim for the best possible life. Third, even when means to genetically enhance are not available, this doesn't mean that it 
in the case of genetics enhancements were available, there would be no obligation to apply them. Um, to to make a comment here, this is particularly a pertinent if you think about the scientific development of these technologies, we might think, well, currently there aren't any genes we could target here reliably such that um, they would be expected to improve human well-being. But that is perfectly fine for this ethical exercise here, right? We could say, look, yes, perhaps at the moment there are actually no genetic enhancements. But the question is, once we develop the technologies to such an extent that there were such enhancements, what we should, what should we do about it, right? So this, um, we we have to engage in these difficult bioethical questions even before these technologies become available, because firstly they will guide them how these technologies will be used once they do, and secondly they will help us to think about um, how much perhaps money we should invest into these technologies. All right. So to move to the conclusion. To conclude, objections against genetic enhancements, not weighing the costs against the benefits, must, must fail against the backdrop of the consequentialist principle. Of course, maybe the PPB does premise one or the CP does premise three is false. But the aim of this paper is to establish that the parental obligation to genetically enhance the children logically follows. Once the PBB and the CP are accepted. The slippery slope is genuine. Objections trying to establish that the individual costs outweigh the benefits of the targeted agent seem to be more successful. However, a genetic alteration that is not expected to lead to the creation of a being with higher welfare cannot be called an enhancement in a welfareist sense. Merely showing that an enhancement in the sense of increasing some capacity is contrary to the welfare of the child does not undermine the argument provided in this paper, as it precisely rests on the welfareist definition of enhancement. However, these cases might provide us with a valid argument against exceedingly strong optimism in discovering all-purpose goods. Having explored the potential differences in the PPB and the parental obligation to genetically enhance their children in Section 4, I conclude that even though they do not share exactly the same consequences, the differences between them do not justify a different moral standing, that is their obligatoriness. With the additional premise of lacking relevant moral differences between the consequences of the two procedures, we have successfully defended the conclusion, which was five. That is to say, those who accept the principle of procreative beneficence and the consequentialist principle must bite the bullet and accept that parents have the obligation to genetically enhance their embryos. As a consequentialist, Julian Savolescu should have no problem of doing so. Now, that was my very first um, academic publication, looking better at it. Um, I think there's a lot of virtues in this paper. It's very... Um, in very detailed form, goes into the possible objections to the main argument, um, which is quite the virtue. Um, on the other hand, I think the English could be vastly improved now in retrospect, with my English having been improved qua having written um, dozens of more publications. Um, my acknowledgements here, I would like to thank Roberto Fumagalli and three anonymous referees for helpful comments over the course of the development of this paper. And furthermore, I would like to thank the students from the University of Bayreuth and the London School of Economics for whom I had lively discussions. Um, an earlier draft version of this paper was submitted to the LSE um, Bayreuth Student Conference in Philosophy, where I had the honor to present this paper. And yeah, really... That made me think maybe I should, maybe I could become a philosopher, right? This is quite fun going into, yeah, exploring some difficult ethical questions. At this time, there were CRISPR cars just came out that raised these new ethical questions. And yeah, at these conferences, you were able to discuss this with other scholars and uh, really made me think maybe this is something I should pursue. Um, this is something worthwhile. And well, this is uh, what I ended up doing. Um, so yeah, I, I think um, while this paper could be improved in many ways, um, I think it is a quite a good paper 
nonetheless. Um, looking, thinking about perhaps my own students writing essays now at university, they often um, fail to really think about the counter arguments given um, or that could be given to their position. And this is something I really would encourage you to think about your, if you want to write a philosophical essay. Really think hard about um, any counter-arguments that could be given. Try to imagine being someone else uh, that doesn't share perhaps the underlying assumptions. What could they respond? Um, yeah, so thanks for listening to this um, reading and some commentary on my very first academic publication. I hope you enjoyed this. Um, I hope I see you again on another episode. Uh, have a good week.